Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Jam where we take an in-depth look at the week's news and hot topic through a political science lens. With myself, Jeeva, joined as always by Michael. Michael, how are you doing today, buddy? Yeah, I'm good. I um, enjoyed the game last night. Football is on its way home. It's in transit at the moment. You Hello. Know, <laughs> it's going to be here home with us on, on Sunday, so I'm looking forward to it. How are you, Jeeva? Yeah, I'm very, I also agree with that. You're very, you're bullish. I mean, I am also quite bullish. I would. We say. have to be bullish, even. I think. I think it's time to. I'm be now. Bullish. I think you're right. I think you're bullish. I'm now made nervous by your bullishness. <laughs> and now I'm nervous. It's like yesterday. Someone sent me the Prince Charles, like whatever the bad pain is coming home, and I was like, I could get excited, but everyone else gets excited. It makes me nervous. But anyway, that's where we are. But it was a great game, and it's been a great time. Did you go out partying? I didn't actually, but I've seen all the scenes of everyone partying on the streets and I'm trying to make some fun plans for, for Sunday so I can join everyone and have a, have a good time. Well, very, very nice. Um, happy days. And today, guys, we're delighted to be joined by a very esteemed guest, uh, Gahan, who's just finished researching state authority and its restriction on religious belief and the freedom of speech at Oxford and is now working as a lawyer. Gahan, welcome to the pod. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing today? I'm well. Have you heard about England's great and glorious victory, our greatest since World War II last night? Yes. yes. Uh, I have a resident uh, UK citizen in the house who has not stopped playing uh, uh, It's Coming Home since morning. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I will phrase one more time. I will seriously I'm really glad that song has got international reach and it is a brilliant song. I mean, just think about what's going to happen on Sunday, Gahan. You're not going to stop hearing it for weeks. No, I'm very much uh, a supporter of England football. It's just that I'm a reluctant supporter. I I don't want to come across as someone who wholeheartedly supporting English. But I work very hard to get. Uh, But now (laughs) it's too late. I'm, I'm very much committed. To seeing the result on, on, on Sunday. Well, it's great. Look, we always we work, we're very welcoming of uh, everyone to the English fold and everyone to sing that song in a in a worldwide chorus. So happy days! Uh, and today, guys, Gahan, we've got on to talk about uh, specifically about the conflict between religious practice and liberal democratic values. How the state should respond to those who are members of what can be restrictive religious organisations, and finally, how liberalism should respond to those who hold illiberal values. Gahan, why don't you take us away with uh, whether you do see there being a conflict between kind of the freedom of religious practice as well as liberal democratic values and maybe some major instances of, of where you think that might be the case? Sure, sure. And, and, and I think those are great questions. Um, I think the important thing is to start with defining what we mean by, you know, liberal democratic values, right? Uh, and right at the top of that list would be individual liberty, which of course is what liberalism as a political philosophy is founded on. And in liberal democracies, we not only value individual liberty, we also value personal autonomy and the rights of individuals to make choices without undue interference. So there's certainly instances where a conflict could arise between certain religious practices and liberal democratic values, particularly if the religious practice is discriminatory or intolerant of the rights and freedoms of others. And and we see plenty of examples of this, right? For example, if you have a practice of child ordination uh, within a particular religious tradition, it's 
no doubt incompatible with liberal democratic values of personal autonomy and the right to choose because you know children have the right to choose their uh, occupation upon reaching adulthood they have the right to receive education all of these things are impeded when they're put into a religious order without consent right uh, apart from that you have religious practices that very seriously discriminate against women uh, and sexual minorities and and, and these are also incompatible with liberal democratic values. So there are good reasons, I think, to criticize those practices and, and push for reform. But I want to make a slightly different point as well, um, and that's about secularism. You see, secularism uh, is usually compatible with liberal democratic values, but it all depends on the brand and the nature of the secularism that's been advanced by the state. Uh, one conception that we're accustomed to is secularism as neutrality, which means uh, it's a policy of refraining from adopting or imposing any religion or belief on citizens. And that's, that's the sort of secularism that we like and we love. Uh, but then you have a sort of hostile secularism, and that's the active pursuit of a policy of unbelief. And I think that type of secularism kind of takes the same... Uh, appearance and, and nature as a, a, a religious uh, doctrine or religious dogma. So, for example, prohibiting religious symbols or attire in public spaces, I think that might be considered hostile secularism. So I think as much as there could be a clash between religious practice and liberal democratic values, we also have to be uh, open to the idea that secularism or certain types of aggressive secularism could also be inconsistent with uh, liberal democratic values. So let's let's unpick that a bit. I think it's specifically there about around France and and Lassie because I think that's where you're you're drawing yes, towards. Yes, yes. So I should I should say to our listeners. So in two thousand and four, I'm getting them right, if I remember correctly. France uh, banned the burqa in, and other ostentatious religious public symbols, and have since then. Uh, had further bans on Islamic dress in 2010 that stops any face wearing in public. Um, and there's kind of, I think, like you say, you speak about hostile secularism. And I think it kind of gets this idea that actually tolerance is actually quite hard. It's not a natural way for us to live in many respects, that it's not the natural state of being. And in this particular case, what tends to happen is there's like a hegemonic cultural value. And when it sees another culture is being threatening it reacts in a way that is illiberal and while it's dressed in the like you say the religion or rather from a, a liberal viewpoint it ends up being hostile and discriminatory and here particularly with the burqa ban we don't see similar bans on for example orthodox jewish women wearing headscarves with that we like a fair way in which kind of hostile secularism has played out in france yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're spot on. And let's try and break that down a little bit more. Right? You have countries like France, Switzerland, Belgium. They've all passed legislation prohibiting certain types of religious attire. And that includes the hijab, which is the headscarf. Uh, and they've targeted public institutions and in some cases, public spaces. So for example, school teachers have been prevented from wearing the headscarf in schools when they're teachers. Right? So in each of these instances, you have courts and specifically uh, the European Court of Human Rights, when it comes to that stage, upholding the restrictions on freedom of religion or these religious practices 
on grounds of secularism, right? And also the European value of living together. You mentioned that in the French context. So the, there are, I think, cultural and sort of aesthetic biases that creep into how societies and even the judiciary reason. You have European secularism, um, in a sense, more hostile to non-European religious practices. And you were spot on when you mentioned the disparities there. And then you have uh, a lot more tolerance of religious practices that people are accustomed to over the centuries. So let's take a quick example. Uh, the courts have upheld bans on uh, Islamic attire. For example, uh, the Leila Shaheen case, uh, the European court actually upheld the ban by Turkey on a headscarf. And they, they held that it didn't violate the person's freedom of religion. But in very similar cases, the same court has found a violation of religious freedom when an employee of British Airways was uh, prevented from displaying a cross uh, and, and the court found that that violated her freedom of religion. So I think it, there seems to be a tension between religious freedom and secularism, but only where secularism itself becomes an aggressive ideology which competes with religion uh, and, and not a policy of neutrality. neutrality. Uh, so ultimately, I think hostile secularism looks a lot like a theocracy and, and I, I think it can be at odds with uh, liberal democratic values. Yeah, I think those are, those are all really interesting points. And like, I guess the points on liberal democracy may be the idea that some religions might be incompatible to liberal democracy or so some of the core principles of liberal democracy is kind of some, it's kind of what underscores this hostile secularism, right? And I do think in parts of the West, folks, we've spoken about Islam, so I think it's probably nice to kind of build on that argument, right? And there is a desire to maybe present Islam as juxtaposed to the values we, we value and we, and we cherish in the West. So it's like, you achieve this by presenting this kind of stereotypical presentation of the West as a beacon of progress, of democracy, of human rights, and you present Islam and Muslims as juxtaposed to these values and principles. So they are bigoted, they're intolerant, and they're sexist. And actually, you know, the framing of the, the burqa ban is to, to liberate women, right? Is to you know, liberate these women who, who have been forced to wear this this and this these face coverings. You know, actually, you ignore the agency of these of these women. Actually, you know they they, they want to wear these coverings, and I do think there is a desire at times to present Islam in particular as a, as a threat to the West and as a threat to 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 Western values. I think Trevor Phillips, you know, he said that you know Muslims are a nation within a nation when describing Muslims in the UK. And actually, this really kind of binary framing isn't really useful when it comes to understanding understanding Muslim communities, for example, in the UK and in other parts of the West. I would think one other thing I would I would add there. There's also something I would, of course, I'd agree with that. And there's something around. I'm thinking particularly about the the cake store in the United States. The contrast here. So I should say there was in the United States in 2014. There was a very famous cake maker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake for a gay wedding because he had strong religious beliefs against doing so. And this was before gay marriage was legalized in the United States. Now. As it happens, the Supreme Court narrowly ruled, didn't rule on whether or not this was right or not. It narrowly ruled in favour of the cake maker saying for various reasons to do with the case, it was legitimate for him or rather it was illegitimate for the case to be brought against him. And there's a difference there, it feels like, between the negative freedom of you being able to do what you like and wear what you like. So in this particular case, uh, Muslim women choosing how they're dressed. I think there's also 
there is sexism very much ingrained in there, policing what women can and cannot wear. And it isn't so different from uh, other places or areas in which we see. It. And it should be seen as kind of equally problematic and reprehensible in some cases. But on the other hand, the positive compulsion of forcing someone to do something against their religious beliefs, in this case, baking a cake. And those two things feel like they're very, very different. Like to me, the negative freedom or violation around forcing a woman to wear something feels very different than positively forcing someone to, in one sense, support something they don't agree with. Absolutely. And I think those distinctions are, are crucial when it comes to the way in which we contest uh, illiberal views. I mean, in both cases, there's no doubt that the position held by the person concerned is illiberal, right? Mm -hmm. It it is an incursion on the freedom of others, whether it's the freedom to wear what you want or the freedom to walk into a shop uh, and and order a cake. Uh, The views are illiberal. But the way in which we involve the government or the state in contesting uh, these two cases might be different. And I think that's that's also really important to try and unpack. Hmm. Should we move on then to like, what do we think about, we kind of touched this, but the social pressures involved. So what happens when, yeah. do, do we think there's an issue around the social pressures of being within a religious group, religious order, and the way in which it undermines liberal values in the sense that one can both have the technical right to express their beliefs but if they do so, but it contradicts the religious order in which they live in, and that leads to an expulsion that actually has huge social costs that aren't considered within like a, a kind of a classical liberal framework. Yeah, I mean, that's another really important question. But I want to start with the question of what we mean by freedom of expression, right? Mm. So uh, the value that is often at odds with uh, religious practice is this value of freedom of expression. And what it actually means is really important to unpack. And I, I think there's a tendency to present a caricature of this value. We, we, th- we sometimes think of freedom of expression as the freedom to offend or insult people, uh, the freedom to lampoon a religion or, or make fun of public figures or religious leaders, right? Uh, and I think freedom of expression absolutely does entail some of these things. But it's a mistake to reduce this value to those things alone because freedom of expression is not always a glamorous thing. It's essentially the engine oil that sort of lubricates the engine of a liberal democracy. So your right to vote, uh, your right to convey a simple opinion, to receive information, uh, to receive reasons for a decision, to organize associations, to express yourself in in art, in song, dance, uh, in film, to, to hold a government to account, all these very ordinary day-to-day activities tied to one's citizenship are really founded on the premise that uh, you have the freedom to express yourself. Uh, So I think there's no liberal democratic society without freedom, and there's no freedom without freedom of expression. So it's, it's as simple as that. So sometimes we encounter situations where there are certain pressures, and, and these pressures need not necessarily be religious. They could be interests in national security, in public order, more recently uh, public health. And these pressures can tend to be framed in a way that overrides individual freedom. And I, I think reasonable restrictions on certain freedoms may be justified on those grounds. But rarely is there proper reasonable justification for the state to restrict people's right to express themselves. And I think 
one of the, the few reasonable justification, justifications that I could think of would be in the context of inciting others to commit violence. And I think there are good reasons for the state to restrict such speech. But every other type of offensive, contentious speech, speech that offends the dominant religious order, all of that, I think, needs to be contested without the involvement of the state. Uh, citizens have to take on the responsibility to counter, uh, you know, contentious ideas, even liber liberal ideas, through open debate, rather than uh, transferring their responsibility to the state. And now, why do I say this? I think it really boils down to trust in the state. And this is where I think the West and uh, the Global South, in terms of their experiences, can be quite different, right? In the West, I think there's an increasing appetite uh, to invite the state to be more involved in controlling speech. Uh, and that could extend to uh, speech that is really offensive and, and really uh, counter to our liberal values. But I think in the global south, the problem is a little different. And I, and I want to pick on an example from Pakistan because you, you mentioned expulsion uh, as a result of being contrary or, or being against the, the dominant religious order. In Pakistan, you have a situation where the Ahmadiyya community is actively persecuted for their religious expressions, uh, such as displaying the kalima on their clothing. Now, the state here has actually reinforced that persecution by upholding restrictions on their right to express themselves. And those restrictions are often justified on grounds that we're familiar with, like public order and public morals, except that it's the Sunni majority being offended by the religious expressions of the Ahmadiyya community that the state is taking on. So you see, sometimes the challenge is not about the state not doing enough to protect freedom of expression. It's actually about the state actively violating the freedom of expression uh, when those expressions are at odds with the dominant culture or religion that the state uh, purports to represent. And that's the same in, in, in places like Sri Lanka, where I'm from. You have a peculiar situation where a writer, uh, like the writer Shaktika Satkumara, writing a story that is quite provocative. Uh, although it was fictionally, he's kind of alluding to abusive practices in Buddhist temples. And that's immediately seen as offensive towards Buddhism and the Buddhist clergy. He is arrested under hate speech law. By contrast, Buddhist monks that have openly incited violence against Muslims have enjoyed incredible impunity. So there's a reason to be distrustful of the state. And, and that's why I'm very hesitant to invite governments to in, get involved in these contestations between religious groups and those outside it, particularly on, on issues of freedom of expression, because it's much more sustainable, and I'll come to that point a little later, to uh, invite open debate rather than involve the government in policing uh, freedom of expression. What about what liberalism, okay, what about what the liberalism gets wrong, or at least liberalism misses out, okay, as at the very least like a, a not necessarily as a political ideal, but a social ideal, right? The idea that actually we're not autonomous individuals who like choose to interact and socialize and contract with one another, right? We're embedded in groups and social relations, those family and faith and community. And without those groups, like you do end up lacking meaning on purpose. And particularly I'm thinking about, so you spoke about discrimination against minority groups in Pakistan. And I assume other words are you see very tight religious groups that 
are provide a kind of a sense of bonding social capital okay you're there with each other um you trust each other you cooperate with each other they also have very strong kind of social safety nets as well you see that not just abroad but inside the united kingdom you know i know the north london i think the hasidic jewish community are very strong very tightly bonded to the extent of having jewish ambulances you know this is a community that is bonded together okay but the problem can that can arise is that if you express a viewpoint that is antithetical to that community's beliefs you face sanction at the very least or expulsion at the very worst and that causes huge cost to the individual um we know it costs as a huge health cost we know it takes years to recover from that you've lost your entire social group and your entire social fan um grounding you do suffer from isolation as well your entire life has changed because you are something different or if you were a part of a group that did not believe that homosexuality was acceptable and now you have to leave so my thing there is about you know should the state step in or indeed how does the state support those who do want to freely express their views but where the social sanctions are very high is this not something that kind of liberalism ends up missing out entirely no absolutely and and i think here's where the state has to be sensitive to uh, social cohesion right a sense of belonging into communities but you also have uh, the, this phenomenon of representatives within communities claiming to be uh, you know, the representatives of the entire community and controlling uh, who enters and exits those communities, the sort of gatekeepers of those communities. And I think communities that reject diversity uh, are probably not the sorts of communities that those individuals can thrive in in the first place. So if your community does not accept you because you happen to be part of a sexual minority or you, you identify as a trans individual, uh, I think the state's role is actually to protect the individual rather than try to press the individual to stay within that community. So, so again, it all depends on context and, and the sorts of values that are uh, at odds with one another. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have a one-size-fits-all. What I can say is that we need to be cautious about inviting governments to mediate these sorts of relationships because governments often use a sort of uh, one-size-fits-all policy for very, very uh, complicated um, and, 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 and complex uh, social relations. And I, I don't think the government uh, should be playing a part there that, that's, that's prominent. Although the government really needs to be protecting individuals who are at risk of social exclusion and even violence as a result of taking a stand on something they believe in and what they identify with. Isn't that like, it's a tough, it's like a tough balance in that, right? So trying to protect, protect the individual while not actually, because you, I think you're, you're basically hinting at the idea that governments actually haven't got a great sense of the in-group dynamics there. And so they might not be the best ones to mediate. So how do they protect the individual while also not mediating in the kind of group dynamics, if that makes sense? Like those two things seem to me a bit opposed, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what I mean by a government uh, protecting individuals would be governments protecting individuals from violence and, and discrimination through yeah. the institutional that they offer, right? <clears throat> I, I don't mean government actually intervening at the individual level to to uh, enable better social cohesion. I, I really think that, that they, these two things are different. But at the same time, um, government has a, has a role to play in fostering a society in which uh, there is tolerance, that there, there is 
uh, neutrality in terms of which religion is preferred. And when governments take a position on uh, which religion is dominant or which religion is the norm, that can be much worse than uh, the, where the individual is excluded. Here, whole communities can be excluded from society. And that's why the, the example of Pakistan is important. Here we have a situation where the government is actually taking on the, the representation of the Sunni majority, where you have an entire community that wants to identify as Muslim, wants to express uh, their religious beliefs in public, that's actually not allowed to do so. Uh, so there's a group uh, exclusion as opposed to individual exclusion. I think it's really difficult for governments to navigate that space, but we can at least expect governments to act in good faith. Uh, and that's a really important, simple principle to hold a government to account by. Just to act in good faith and not uh, impose themselves and impose laws in bad faith. And we see a lot of lot of contexts, uh, and, and I don't want to single out the, the Global South, but since I come from the Global South, uh, that's what I'm sort of studying. We see it a lot in the Global South, where majoritarian states really pretend to impose the law in good faith, but what they're really doing is targeting uh, those that are just opposed to the dominant culture or, or, or religious practice. Is that something you've seen change? Because I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about India, of course, because that's what my natural frame of context. But India has gone from being um, at least avowedly secular to being overtly religious in its interpretation of laws and, and social sanction is that a more general trend across south asia or, is, or am i extrapolating just like from one case and being a bit silly oh uh, well i think it all depends on demographic dynamics uh, history um, a number of factors could play a role in in how a country will deal with religious minorities right some countries and this is not from south asia but uh, you know further east They've taken an active policy against tolerating sort of religious differences. And, and even though the states can be described as, as veering towards authoritarianism, it's not a sort of ethno-religious authoritarianism. And I'm talking about contexts like Singapore, uh, where, where ethno-religious difference is really not part and parcel of the state's machinery. Whereas in places like Sri Lanka, you do have the state really embodying the ethno-religious identity of the majority group. Because we have 70 plus percent uh, singular Buddhist uh, in Sri Lanka. And it's natural for the state to gravitate towards sort of representing the interests of that very large majority. Uh, and that makes institutions less uh, sort of um, amenable to dealing with minorities, minor, minority issues in good faith. Uh, I, I think that's where institutional decay starts sitting in. Um, so I think you're kind of right to compare uh, India with other contexts like Sri Lanka and Pakistan because you do have a dominant religion. It's just that the religion changes. In, in India, you have Hinduism. Uh, in Pakistan, you have Sunni uh, Muslim uh, sort of dominance. And then in, in Sri Lanka, you have singular Buddhism. And it's not to say that these very dynamics don't play out at a regional level. Within, within, the, nas within the national boundaries, you have regional majorities uh, that do the same thing to regional minorities, right? So it's it gets complex uh, as you dig deeper. Yeah, maybe building on this, like I'm focusing on the kind of a liberal, a liberal views, a liberal views thing, like because I find that an interesting dynamic and something we can build on with this point you're making now. 
So does the idea that some particular religions might, or particular interpretations of a religion might be diametrically opposed to liberal values, right? And they, they, they express illiberal views. So there are particular interpretations of Islam, like much like any any other religion, I imagine it can be quite oppressive. But what, where, what I think can be quite problematic, and it kind of links to the point I made earlier, is that there's this kind of mainstream Islamophobia that presents Muslim culture and Muslim communities as inherently and kind of homogeneously opposed to kind of the key components of Western liberal values. And actually, I'm I'm a Christian. I, I'm really got really strong Christian faith, and there are Christian interpretations that can be used to further white supremacist goals. So how do we then? Because when my mainstream discourse is willing to frame particular religious groups in one way, right? So we're willing to frame all Muslims as holding these kind of liberal views. And I think we see we saw this in, in the UK following the kind of Batley and Spen um, by-election um, last week. So when, when we frame kind of all these groups, maybe or particular religious groups having illiberal values, like how do we, as how does the state kind of deal with that? Really, is my is my question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think liberalism is, is founded on a very simple idea, right? That freedom and the freedom of the individual is the norm and coercion has to be the exception. And there are really good reasons as to why so-called illiberal views must be dealt with uh, in liberal societies without the active involvement of the state because the, the state is the ultimate machine of coercion, right? So let me be clear though. I'm not saying that illiberal views must be tolerated in the sense that uh, they must be left unchallenged, right? And that, that's the extreme that I don't agree with at all. I'm saying that we need to define the way we counter the, these illiberal views. And there are good reasons for leaving the state out of that strategy in most cases. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of reasons. First, I think in principle, our response to offensive and, and let's, let's call them illiberal speech needs to be proportionate. So if the speech is encouraging people to commit acts of violence against a, a targeted uh, identity group, uh, I think the response really needs to be severe. And I think criminal sanctions are absolutely needed. But if it's a display of chauvinism or prejudice without incitement, I think we should be cautious about insisting that the state in gets involved and we use coercion to that extent. The response needs to be proportionate and the speech needs to be sharply countered, even ridiculed, made fun of, uh, where we, we put an enormous amount of energy into countering such speech in the hope that societies evolve for the better through open debate. And we know that societies have evolved in the right direction. We, we never really criminalize the use of derogatory racial slurs. But despite that, societies have evolved to some extent to understand their harm and, and at least to some extent push them out of our common vocabularies, that that's happened. And if we use a historical lens that is wide enough, we can certainly see these things have, have got slightly better with time. And I think open debate has a lot to do with that positive change. But my second reason is more practical. We have to understand that illiberal views are symptoms or manifestations, let's call them, of internalized fear and hatred. Uh, and I think restricting speech that uh, uh, really does not eliminate uh, under those underlying fears and, and, and that, that hatred, uh, these are just going to manifest uh, in how people treat each other, in how people vote, like you mentioned, uh, in the social bonds we decide to make. So focusing on speech alone will only drive 
those underlying problems deeper and, and out of the public sphere. And that may be great for aesthetic purposes. We get to feel like, you know, our society is super liberal uh, as a result of the elimination of prejudice in speech, as a result of eliminating religious practices that we don't like. But that's cosmetic because people find other ways of manifesting their prejudice. And prejudicial content uh, needs to be counted in open. And I think the discourse is much healthier when it's done that that way because it's it's a long-term, sustainable, incremental uh, way of changing things. So I think, uh, just, to, just to wrap up that point, I think liberal democracies are not meant to be pristine utopias where everyone speaks uh, to each other with this sort of choreographed respect, right? I think they're meant to be messy and, and sometimes cantankerous. And the open clash between right and wrong uh, hopefully moves us in the right direction. And I think uh, I would prefer that kind of society uh, that is all, that, than the sort of society that is all about controlling the individual. Uh, and, and I think that latter society about where controlling the individual becomes the priority is, is not a liberal society, it's actually authoritarian. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. And also, like, in that sense, the, the state, like you say, isn't there uh, to coerce in either direction. It's certainly there to coerce a viewpoint within a liberal setting, right? And also, um, unlikely to be successful. Look, racism didn't end in the UK because we passed the Race Relations Act, and sexism didn't, ask, didn't end because we passed the Equality Act. That happened because, in one sense, society's views changed, but also, like, the state did play a role in promoting views of tolerance you know we do fly uh pride flags we do make it clear that actually the viewpoint that a woman can't do x or y job is no longer acceptable like we're changing that we're putting in the same kind of mechanisms we see we'll see those kind of uh, acts do play a role in changing views so look i'm obviously of course from a south asian background and historically even today south asian communities have not treated women well the sexism is rampant right and that's not just um in its most basic form as a preference for sons but also consider today in india there are 50 million missing girls you know there are a lot more men than women in india and that's because women were discriminated against or rather girls were discriminated against to the extent that so many of them either weren't born or died that there are many more men than women in india those kind of views those kind of cultural aspects in one sense, did infuse that diaspora, but those views then changed as well. And that's because we lived in a society where tolerance was promoted and our viewpoints changed. My worry now, though, is in terms of a liberal speech and who shuts down, and we've talked all about a religion today, but my other worry is sometimes with the, the so-called kind of progressive champions of liberalism. You know, there is this bizarre version of a secular version of blasphemy where you can't question or seek to debate ideas, right? So you see student unions issuing statements saying we shall not tolerate viewpoint X. Uh, this isn't a debate. Um, your speech is harming someone else and therefore should be outlawed. And in particular, like I would draw on a specific instance here, which is around the debate in immigration. We've seen writers turn around and say you cannot oppose immigration without being um, illiberal or racist. Um, as fact, you know, I've got like a particular quote here from Afua Hirsch, who wrote the book British, and she talks about the fantasy of free speech. And she specifically says, this is the real political correctness gone mad. 
sanitized language used to dress up vicious attitudes. Newly polite preachers are, they claim, interested in putting newcomers in their place, not because they enjoy it, but in order to protect native workers from globalization. Like what she's saying there is, you're using free speech in a way that she doesn't like, particularly to oppose immigration. And therefore that's not just a liberal, that's hate speech. And that to me is a far more, in one sense, uh, worrying aspect of, in one sense, there's a sense in which that wing ends up winning the battle, but losing the war. Like the entire point about living in a liberal society is that we're able to exchange views and we debate them and take them on on the view. We don't just say, no, you're wrong or no, that's hate speech. And for me, this is a far more, well, it's a worrying aspect and a threat to freedom of expression that I think sometimes we ignore. But and, and, like, and just to, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, so supposing someone else, someone's free speech is, you know, directly kind of questioning the right of existence or the right to stay of someone else in, in a country, like, is that not a problem? It's a, it's not a, you could certainly disagree with them, but what you, what you're doing here is you're saying that, and first of all, she's arguing against people who want to limit immigration. So the idea is, are you going to let people come into a particular society and policy? She's saying that's hate speech and that's wrong. And people act as if that's in, people who say they're trying to limit immigration are always acting in bad faith. Okay, that could be your viewpoint, but to cast that as hate speech or indeed as racist is to my mind not right. And also to then decry the ability of people to debate that viewpoint is to my point not correct. From a practical and a policy implication, is your argument that the border should be completely open for every country? If so, fine, but then that seems to be like quite a strange policy position to arrive at. And, and if you were to take the argument a little step further, let, let's assume that it is racist and mm -hmm. it is hateful. The question is, what do we do with uh, with sentiments that are, you know, prejudicial, that are chauvinistic, that are, uh, you know, actually racist and hateful? And, and, and what do we how do we cope with those sentiments? Because my my second point, about, which was much more practical than than sort of normative, was that you cannot win that battle by suppressing speech. You absolutely mm. cannot uh, contend with uh, people's uh, viewpoints about an issue, let's take immigration, by actually silencing them and censoring uh, the, the, the views they have, because they will manifest in other ways. And we see that in voting patterns, right? We see that it, it's so evident in the United States. Uh, it was sort of evident in Brexit as well, that the, the, the way people think can manifest in the way people vote and the way people support policies anyway. So you might as well pull those ideas out into the public domain and have robust uh, debates uh, where you actually can contend with these uh, views in, in, in an open society rather than try to police what people say because it's almost like you're being intellectually lazy, right? You're, you're saying you can't say that and if you can't say that, that ceases to exist, mm. which is not the case. Right? You can, you, even if you prevent people from saying what they have to say, if you no platform them, they're still going to find their, 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 their fora. They're going to find people who agree with them. And you're just going to have those same discussions taking place outside the, the prominent uh, sort of uh, spaces. And they're going to still have those views 
disseminated and spread and you're going to have voting patterns based on them. So you're much better off. You're really committed to immigration reform. And if you're committed to open borders, I would say have that discussion in open and bring in all the arguments for and against in open and have a debate that you're not afraid of, uh, you know, uh, the, the opposing viewpoint. You're, you're, you're much rather contend and contest that viewpoint and win the argument rather than silencing your opponent. So, so I, I sort of brand that kind of approach to uh, discussions as a sort of an, a notion or, or symptom of intellectual fear and, and laziness. And, and I think we need to be better than that if we want to call ourselves a liberal democratic society. Yeah, I, I would say it's intellectually lazy to frame, for example, opposition to immigration, broadly speaking, is entirely, all of it's racist, right? So anyone who opposes, maybe, like, in the UK, opposes a, an apprehension to immigration is a racist. Like, that's intellectually flimsy and lazy. But there are times when free speech is weaponized and used by people, particularly maybe looking at the right of politics here, to express views that would be quite problematic and quite racist and, and quite xenophobic. And that's absolutely spot on. And that's absolutely true. And... I think often at times, and the reason why you know people are quite uncomfortable with the, the immigration conversation and, and how free speech is weaponized around that is because at times the immigration debates and, and, and discussions around that have been used and, and have been and, and free speech has been weaponized to target already marginalized communities in the UK. But that doesn't mean that every single argument around immigration or opposition to immigration is is racist. I think that would you'd lose the battle if you framed literally every single opposition to immigration as is entirely racist because that's just not how you you win debates. I suppose a I suppose a broad point is that liberalism doesn't just mean defending the promoting the tolerance that you like, and so I would agree that it's not it's not nice when someone says something that's racist. I certainly don't enjoy it, but I also back myself to take it on. You know, if someone was to sit there and say. Um, I am less, I am a lower quality because of the colour of my skin. Like, let's go. Like, let's absolutely have that debate. I'm not at all worried. I don't shy or shirk away from it. And I also don't shirk away from someone else to someone else to say that. No, I, I mean, that's because also I, what you are gone. I just, I think there's particular debates we shouldn't, we shouldn't be having. We shouldn't be having debates about whether. I, I understand the idea that there are some things we need to leave to debate about, right? But having debates about whether, you know, a person of particular colour of skin is, is intelligent or not, all these sorts of things, why on earth are we having debates about this? I think we minimise the quality of debates by having they... debates about things that are completely irrelevant and things that are completely liberal that should absolutely be, be laughed out of the place. Let me just comment on that point, uh, Mike. I think, I think you're right that some, some discussions are a waste of time because we should be past those discussions. Exactly. Uh, and spending time on that would be would be useless. But I, I would be still hesitant to advocate <clears throat> for a society or, or endorse a society that silence or, silences or bans those discussions on the basis that we've, we've passed them, right? So I think there is a sort of um, strength that a society gains by exercising those muscles in in actually preventing those uh, sorts of discourses from coming out. So that doesn't mean actually silencing, but that actually means contesting and, and actually um, criticizing and condemning that kind of sentiment. So just to go back to Jeevan's point, I think as much as we talk about liberal rights, there are also liberal duties 
that citizens who are part of liberal democratic societies should be fulfilling. And that means you have to get out of your comfort zone and oppose uh, illiberal views. You have to actually contest and take them on. And I think often we prefer to, to transfer those responsibilities to the state or just you know, pretend like the, those sentiments don't exist by, by silencing and, and banning those sentiments altogether. And I think that doesn't really make us a resilient society. What it does is it makes us soft. Uh, and the way we become a resilient, uh, stronger society that can actually contend with uh, discourses that are deeply problematic, deeply dangerous, fascist discourses, racist discourses, the only way we, we become resilient to those is that is when we practice the, 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 the art or the actual activity of opposing them in public. Uh, and I think uh, that's the that's what a liberal democratic society needs to look like. Uh, it shouldn't be a, a society w- which is sort of a utopia, as I mentioned before. It's never going to be that. And all we then end up with is a society that has uh, sort of perfect respect on the surface and some really deep problems below the surface. And before you know, you have right-wingers running government. Um, and we've seen that happen in some of the most liberal democratic societies we can think of yeah and i would i would add to that point which is i think the reason why we don't have the debate of uh why is someone of x skin color less um adept at why is it precisely because the intellectual confidence was has to kind of shoot and laugh that argument out of the room but that someone has a right to have that debate and that viewpoint it's just that we also have the right kind of not to listen and take part in it more broadly when you start to get in a position of this isn't a debate we should have, this debate should and should not be allowed, you do start to get into some more aspects, which is with who polices what that actually means, who decides what is and is not allowed, what happens when it becomes anything that I disagree with all of a sudden becomes out of bounds, which is where I feel like this gets to somewhere. And actually, fundamentally, the thing we should also always be prizing is the ability of people to hold diverse and different viewpoints and also to be challenged, you know, I personally enjoy being challenged. I enjoy it when someone kind of shows me where I'm wrong and I'm often wrong about many, many things. But a world in which that isn't the case where your speech offends me because it offends my point of view and therefore shouldn't it be allowed is, is to me not a not a prize worth having. And if you think about who out there might be the thinnest skin, uh, it's often the authoritarian sort of dictators. It's mm. often the states that uh, run you know, totalitarian regimes that are the, the thinnest skinned out there, right? They, these are the same states that want to police uh, what you can say. They, they might go to the extent of even policing references to, you know, cartoon characters because the, the leader might be compared to one, one such character, right? So these are really thin skinned, uh, you know, uh, regimes and, and leaders that want to control power. We don't want to emulate that in liberal de- democratic society. We, we want to be the opposite, where we, we, we develop thicker skins and we're able to actually contend with, uh, you know, speech that's, you know, offensive and, and, and problematic and of speech that we don't agree with. But we want to be able to contend with that because we also want to differentiate ourselves from the sorts of societies that are absolutely paranoid and fearful of anything that can be seen as oppositional or dissenting or, or offensive uh, or lampoon, right? Uh, so I think that distinction is also important 
to to keep in mind and 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 this sort of policing uh, tendency that we see in liberal democratic societies and and particularly in university premises, I think it's scary to see how uh, it emulates the sorts of authoritarian uh, rhetoric and discourse that we don't want to emulate. Mm, fair, it's brilliant. Um, cool, right, guys? Should we do um, final thoughts? What we think of the topic at hand, um, Mike? How about you go first, buddy? Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting chat. I guess you know, focusing on kind of the first part of our discussion about the kind of conflict between maybe religious practice and, and, and liberal democracy. I do think there is desire in parts of the West to, pre to present Islam in particular as a threat or as incompatible to the West, and that's something that should definitely be pushed back against. I do think there is this, you know, framing of Muslim masculinity, for example, as you know, juxtaposed and a threat to mm -hmm. to women in the West, maybe, and this idea that Muslim men are inherently violent, that they're terrorists, all these kind of this weird language. We've seen that the use of, of grooming gangs, it's Muslim grooming gangs in the UK, and that kind of being tied into to Muslim masculinity. So I do think there is something that needs to be done about the way in which particular religions, but I'm thinking about Islam in a kind of constant West here, and how these religions are framed as diametrically opposed. And also, I think when we, we adopt this binary framing of, you know, Islam is bad and the West is amazing, we actually obscure focus from some of the, pro the deep problems that the West has, you know, the history of colonialism, the history of systemic racism that still persists to this very day, the, the, the history and the kind of struggles today with, with patriarchy, these are all problems with the West. So actually the West isn't this beacon of, of hope and democracy and, 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 and everything's amazing in the West and Islam isn't this terrible beastly religion that's attacking the West. It's far more nuanced and actually it's really important that we do address this. On freedom of speech, what I would say is at times I do think freedom of speech is weaponized by some to express and espouse particularly liberal values that would be opposed to the existence of particular groups within society. And that's something I'd actually absolutely want to push back against, really. I understand the points you both raised, and I think the points you both raised are, are valid in some senses, but uh, I also do think it's important that we are not weaponizing free speech, because often when it comes to free speech, it's, oh, someone's been denied a platform and that's censorship, or someone's, you know, university campuses are denying X, X Y, and Z a platform. And actually, you know, often, you know, people, are, you know, no one's owed a platform by anyone at first. That's the kind of first thing I would say, right? So if, if a university campus or if a university group feel they don't want to give someone a platform, it's absolutely up to them. But also we need to, I, I do think that free speech in some senses is, you know, still in place for a lot of people who are framing. So there's a free speech crisis. People are framing this as like, oh, you know, we're not being given a platform. So we're being under attack and, you know, free speech under attack. But actually, like I said, no one's owed a platform. And also often these people aren't really punished for all sorts of things they say. Like if you aren't being convicted by the state for speaking, you still have freedom of speech. So these groups, you know, just because you're not being provided a platform by a particular group of people doesn't mean you haven't got freedom of speech. And also, I do think a lot of these groups are weaponizing freedom of speech in ways that are quite, quite worrying, I would say. So that's those are my my concluding thoughts. Fair. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point, certainly. Um, I think just to start off, like, or rather start off, to end off, um, look, this the state can create conditions for tolerance, but it can't enforce it. Um, we should be glad that we're much more tolerant and liberal than we used to be. We're much less racist. We're much less sexist. We're seeing huge strides. Being, I mean, you think about the strides made uh, for trans rights in the last five years, even. I mean, unthinkable of how quickly society has changed, how quickly we've become tolerant. Um, 
And that's really good news. And the good news is that we're moving in a better direction. And the good news is we did that because we were open and willing to and able to debate and discuss ideas. Um, we didn't just say this thing is bad or this thing is good, right? We didn't say 20 years ago to express homosexuality was, or rather some people did, but the state didn't say to do so was an idea we didn't disagree with. We allowed that free speech to happen and we changed for the better. We were able to enjoy and interact. I think it's really good. Um, and that we are going to deal with things that do make us feel uncomfortable. And that's okay. Life is about dealing with things we don't agree with. And the final thing and the kind of more difficult thing I find for, for us is the ways in which actually, if you're inside a social group, which doesn't allow for diversity of thought, it becomes much more difficult and much more challenging. But in one sense, I mean, look, things happen slowly, tolerance happens slowly. Sometimes we look at the shocking headline and don't look at the really positive trends. The positive trends have been, for the most part, good. Um, cool. And Gahana's course of our expert residence, you get to go last, buddy. Yeah, um, thanks a lot. Um, um, three ideas, very quickly. The first is that we should expose uh, the contradictions in Western liberal de democratic societies. And I think hostile secularism is really something that we need to look at. I think it's really driven by Islamophobia, like, like Mike mentioned. And, and we need to have an honest conversation about how uh, policies that are framed as liberal are really actually intolerant and illiberal. Uh, and that's an internal conversation that I think needs to happen in a much more sincere, honest manner. Uh, and the, the ban on Islamic attire is the starting point for that discussion. Number two, I think we need to recognize that the experience of the West is different to the experience of the global South when it comes to the state. There is a, a tendency to trust the state a lot more in the West when it comes to policing uh, speech in good faith, uh, whereas that luxury is not available to uh, individuals in the global south. Uh, in the global south, you have a lot of instances where the state is actually manipulating uh, policy and law to represent the interests of majority communities. So I think that distinction needs to be understood and sometimes conversations on state regulation of uh, speech in the West can be tone deaf in terms of what uh, the global south experiences are. Number three, and I think this is the probably the most contentious point, Really, we need to um, contend with uh, speech that's problematic, that's chauvinistic, that's racist, that's hateful in open debate and confine ourselves to inviting the state to intervene only really when the speech is inciting violence. Uh, and I don't mean tolerating speech uh, and sort of leaving such speech unchallenged. I'm really talking about a, a robust uh, contestation and criticism and condemnation, lampooning, ridiculing such speech in open debate, where we really don't let people who hold on to those views off the hook or transfer our responsibilities to contest such speech onto the state. So I, I think uh, I, I agree with Mike's statement towards the end that we should be wary of people weaponizing free speech, but the way to really fight back is not to have more policing of speech by the state, but really by contesting uh, and contesting and, and criticizing such speech in open debate. I'm going to pause there. Yeah. 
Fantastic. That was all brilliant. Um, well, thanks, Gahan. That was a, a fantastic and brilliant discussion. Uh, to close us to close us off, what is your your jam of the week and, and why? Uh, I'm going to ask for uh, "You Get What You Give" by the New Radicals. It's uh, it's an oldish uh, jam, um, and I think it's uh, kind of kind of apt for 2021. Uh, that's why I'm going to request it. Oh, it is go. very apt. Uh, it's very apt. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to change. Uh, I don't know how everyone else feels, but I'm at the point where... Are you, look, are you I, looking forward I, to the 19th of July type change? Or... <laughs> what? I, I can't. <laughs> it's too much, isn't it? That's that's probably not the change we want, is it, Jeeve? Must be really getting what I've given. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's why this, that's why the song is so apt for this week oh god it is so apt uh so on the nose one day we'll have like happy days are here or something and we'll all be great but anyway we'll see where we get to um on that note gahan thank you so much for coming it's been an absolutely brilliant discussion um thanks for coming on thank you very much thanks for inviting me have a good weekend take care see ya